Thank you for joining us. I want to welcome everyone to the November installment of the STS 2021 webinar series. This webinar series runs every month and features presentations and panel discussions on a variety of topics relevant and important to cardiothoracic surgeons. The topic for this month is surgeons and comprehensive biomarker testing for lung cancer patients. Please note this webinar is being recorded and will be available tomorrow morning on the STS website, STS YouTube channel, and as part of the STS Hot Topics podcast. STS thanks AstraZeneca for its support of this evening's webinar. At this time, I am pleased to welcome our moderators for this session, Farhoud Farja from University of Washington in Seattle and Blair Marshall from Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Moderators, welcome. I will now turn it over to you. Great, thank you, Wes. Good evening, everyone. We have a great lineup of surgeons from diverse practice settings, bringing perspectives about the evidence behind and implementation of targeted therapy in the adjuvant setting, as well as the role of the surgeon with regards to comprehensive biomarker testing for lung cancer. On our panel, we have Dr. Jessica Donington, Professor of Surgery and Section Chief of Thoracic Surgery at the University of Chicago. Welcome, Dr. Donington. We have Dr. Edwards, a thoracic surgeon at the University of Calgary, as well as another Canadian surgeon, Dr. Kadane, thoracic surgeon at the University of Manitoba, Dr. Kodova, a thoracic surgeon at Oregon Health and Science University, as well as Dr. Martin, associate professor of surgery, tenured professor, and interim chief of thoracic surgery at the University of Virginia. Thank you all for joining this evening. And then I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Farhud Farja, who will do the disclosures and give additional details. He did all the heavy lifting for this webinar. So thank you very much. Thank you. Good evening, everybody. And, and um, thank you for joining us. And, and thank you to all the panelists for taking time to join us and, and lending their minds. Um, briefly, we're just going to go through disclosures. Uh, I'll start with Dr. Marshall. Um, she's a consultant for Ethicon and has received Intuitive, I'm sorry, Honoraria from Intuitive and uh, grant funding as well. Uh, Dr. Donington has served in speaker and advisory uh, board roles for AstraZeneca, Bristol Myers Squibb, um, and Roche Genentech. Uh, Dr. Edwards has uh, no disclosures. Dr. Kadane has served on an advisory board for AstraZeneca. Dr. Cadova has um, no disclosures, and uh, Dr. Martin um, was an advisor uh, for AstraZeneca, uh, for the AstraZeneca sponsored Adura trial and on the Target Elucidate trial. Um, I have no disclosures other than federal grant funding. Um, so um, I thought I would just briefly um, summarize the Adura trial. We're going to start with that topic. And in October 2020, the New England Journal of Medicine published the results of the Adura trial, which were unblinded early by the Independent Data Monitoring Committee. The study recruited over 600 adults from five continents uh, with completely resected stage 1B, 2, 3A, non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer who had an EGFR mutation. Perioperative radiation was not allowed. Adjuvant chemotherapy was allowed, but it was not mandated. Patients were randomized to either placebo or a third generation oral once a day for three years, EGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitor called Ocimertinib. The primary outcome was two-year disease-free survival among patients with stage two 
or 3A non-small cell lung cancer. The patients were almost equally distributed across stage 1B, 2, and 3A. 90% underwent a lobectomy and 60% underwent adjuvant therapy. Among the patients with stage 2 or 3A disease, two-year disease-free survival was 90% for osimertinib and 44% for placebo. Subgroup analyses showed um, that across cancer stage and those that did and did not receive adjuvant chemotherapy, the effects of osimertinib were similar. Improvements in disease-free survival seen in the ADURA trial were consistent with the results of two other trials that evaluated first-generation tyrosine kinase inhibitors. And one difference between the first and the third-generation tyrosine kinase inhibitors appears to be that osimertinib reduces central nervous system disease failures in addition to other types of recurrence. One of those trials evaluating a first-generation tyrosine kinase inhibitor showed superior overall survival for targeted adjuvant therapy. The other did not show differences in overall survival. Though immature, available survival data for the Aduro trial showed no differences in survival between osimertinib and placebo. As of this year, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network recommended osimertinib in the adjuvant setting for patients with EGFR mutations and who have stage 1B or 3A resected disease. NCCN recommends osimertinib with chemotherapy or osimertinib alone if the patient is ineligible for platinum-based therapy. And despite this impressive movement within our field, several critics have cited concerns over these trials, including how patients were staged, the lack of transparency about the surgical quality in the trials and the choice of the primary endpoint. So the first question for our panelists um, is, uh, what are the strengths and weaknesses of the evidence base for targeted therapy in the adjuvant setting? And do you recommend it? And we'll start with Dr. Donington, please. So I think the evidence from Adura is strong. I mean, I guess the biggest thing that makes it strong is the incredible hazard ratio. I mean, those survival curves aren't close. So for many of the other trials we saw with the first generation uh, EGFR TKIs, the curves were separate, but not dramatic. This is what they say that you can put your elbow through, you can drive a bus through, there's all kinds of words for that difference. And I think no matter what we say about staging and surgical quality, that's gonna be hard to argue with. And you're right, it was a real world trial. I love those, like I always put in like quotations, real world trial meant it wasn't all done in the US and it wasn't done to all of the standards that we might expect and be used to in some of our clinical trials. But that survival advantage is, is, is real. And I think that's, Probably some of this is that this third generation agent is better um, than the first and second generation agents and that it is way more effective in the brain. I mean, I still think finding an overall survival advantage in this trial is going to be tough. There was crossover. The, the agents might not be, you know, might not kill all the disease, but it certainly keeps it away. Those are my feelings and that's why I recommend it for my patients. Dr. Edwards? I was intimidated to follow Dr. Donington because she's always so thoughtful, well-read. Um, so I, I tend to be a bit of a, a skeptic. I agree that the benefit in uh, disease-free survival is quite large. 
it's consistent with the direction of the effect in the earlier studies, but even more impressive. Um, and given that, especially in the higher stages, uh, there is an expectation that that might translate to an overall survival benefit. But like Dr. Donington says, we might not get the benefit of that data given all of the crossover. The concerns that I would have are um, how important is a disease-free survival benefit? And there's always that discussion about surrogate endpoints. Um, and it would be great if we had more quality of life data to know um, if, if we're making a difference in terms of, of, uh, of quality of life with the uh, relapses, so are we getting relapses primarily asymptomatic pulmonary nodules or are we impacting things such as symptomatic bone metastases or um, things like that. Um, the other concern being the maturity of the data and is it durable? So if you look at studies like the adjuvant trial with uh, gefitinib and how the two-year survival, uh, disease-free survival benefit wasn't played out at five years. I think it was a smaller benefit and I think we're less likely to lose that here, but it'd be good to see that. Um, and then it is quite costly. Uh, so are we, are we justified in using that? Um, and of course the concerns about the three-year duration of treatment being quite arbitrary. What is that based on? Is the cost of that justified? And the lack of stratification based on whether they received adjuvant chemotherapy or not and uh, the extent of surgery and staging. So I, I do have concerns and I think I'd be a little more reserved in my recommendations to patients. I, I have a hard time not supporting it for the stage twos and three A's. Um, but I, I worry that in the 1Bs, there might not be enough benefit to justify the adverse uh, events and the cost. Dr. Kadane, what do you think? Um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's always an interesting discussion to get into. Uh, there's the usual suspects, um, like, Dr. Do like Dr. Donington and uh, Edwards mentioned about a disease-free survival. There's always these questions, um, and it can seem sometimes esoteric. Um, I don't want to necessarily get into that, but uh, I guess overall survival is always the best gold standard um, endpoint. Uh, but I suppose you could also ask, is that disease-free disease survival and what it portends for patients important? Is it important to patients? Uh, and especially when you frame it from the perspective of how effective uh, the third-generation TKIs like osimertinib are in uh, controlling um, uh, cranial disease, uh, brain metastases. So uh, patients may say that, that actually that's uh, additional time without uh, brain metastases with whether they are symptomatic or not, may be worthwhile. May, it may actually be very important. Um, and then the next question becomes, you know, this, the, the, the three years of being on that TKI afterwards, is it really, um, I'm not sure this is a, a, an accepted term, is it really oncoablative or is it, uh, Oncostatic, right? Is, are you just masking it for that period of time and then it shows up? Um, and again, that question begs the question, is that worth it for patients? Even if it's just oncostatic, that period of time without a brain metastasis. Uh, and I guess one of the other discussion points always is, uh, are, are you creating a problem? Do you use these medications now or do you save it for the metastatic setting? Um, and are you burning that bridge? So 
certainly um, not an easy answer. Uh, I come away from it saying that uh, uh, that I think it's a good idea. I think the evidence base is uh, strong enough to recommend giving it at this point, uh, but it's not a slam dunk. Dr. Cordova, what are your thoughts? I'm going to echo a little bit of what was already uh, said, that the results of the trial are very difficult to uh, ignore just because it is showing a tremendous improvement in disease interval. And if you, especially in the early stage, in stage 1B, it is hard to tell the patient we cured you only to find out that two years later, there is an evidence of metastasis. So in a way, this kind of infrastructure reinforces your potential cure rate. And then we can debate whether it, it is oncostatic or on, oncocidal and uh, how it's going to play out, but we don't have this data yet. So uh, we do need to wait a little bit more. Now, a couple other things which were already raised. Um, there is, this trial also raises a number of other questions. Should we treat them at the same time as uh, or sequential to adjuvant standard chemotherapy? Should it be the only option, even those who are uh, candidates for chemotherapy? Uh, what's the best time interval for treatment? Is it 22 months that was uh, reported? Is it should be shorter? Should it be longer? How, should it be lifelong as long as there is no evidence of uh, uh, metastatic disease? Uh, with all this, as we're waiting for these answers to respond right now, I personally have difficulty to ignore all the available data. And I have uh, no problem recommending, I, can't, I also have difficulty recommending that, but I recommend meeting with an oncologist to discuss the options of standard chemotherapy versus standard plus adjuvant uh, plus um, EGFR uh, therapy plus anything else, and also to uh, to decide whether this is worth it or not based on potential side effects and even patient individual factors. Dr. Martin, so I get a, I guess I get the last word here. Um, so some of the strengths of this one that hasn't been brought up yet. We've talked about the increased central nervous system penetration or ability to prevent brain metastases is a really critical difference between this third generation osimertinib and um, uh, you know, erlotinib and some of the other medicines we've used for a long time. Another really important factor is that um, about half or more of patients treated with those first generation medicines like erlotinib will develop a mutation or a resistance called T790M and will then develop other problems. And osimertinib treats the T790M mutation. And so that's one of the big advantages of this trial over some of the Asian trials that looked at jafitinib and erlotinib. And again, that, that's a really critical factor in sort of maintaining that disease-free survival. Um, so that's a strength of it. Another strength I would mention is you know, the whole disease-free survival versus overall survival art, um, argument. In the past, any adjuvant trials for lung cancer were only based on overall survival and disease-free survival was reserved for the stage four setting. But I simplified this by saying, if you tell me I'm gonna drop dead four years after my surgery, I wanna live a happy full life with no medical problems, not in doctor's offices and then drop dead, rather than being in the oncologist's office or getting radiation therapy to the brain on and off over four years and feeling like a sick person the whole time. So I will take the disease-free survival any day. <laughs> um, and I think most patients would feel the same way that they wanna feel like they're living their lives and they're half, um, you know, functioning well. Uh, so I, I feel like that's a very strong reason to take the disease-free survival as an acceptable outcome. 
Um, and I think, you know, some of the other things, yeah, the duration of therapy remains to be seen and some previous experiences with these agents, things maintain status quo. And then the minute you go off of them, the disease flares. Uh, I think time and experience will tell us what the duration should be um, and if we can learn more about that. Um, but that's an unanswered question and a weakness, I suppose you could say. Thank you, Linda, and the other panelists. So do you all think, does the acceptance of adjuvant-targeted therapy for EGFR-positive patients with stage 1B or higher non-small cell lung cancer, non-squamous, mandate routine biomarker testing for all patients with resected stage 1B or higher non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer. And I have to say that I would even consider squamous, right? Given all the immunotherapies and the PDL one and next-gen sequencing. So what are your thoughts and what's being done at your institutions? We can start off with um, Dr. Edwards this time. Thanks. Privilege of going first. <laughs> Excellent. Um, I guess I was the only one that didn't blanket say that they would want to offer the treatment to the 1Bs through uh, 3As. So for me, it makes sense to test the 2s and 3As for the reason of consideration of the adjuvant treatment with osmeritinib um, based on the treatment portion. Um, with the 1Bs, because I'm a little on the fence about the, the benefit versus cost and adverse event uh, issue, um, I'm not sure that I would be into blanket testing in that group for that reason, but I, I see other benefits to the biomarker testing that I, I think do justify doing it in the 1Bs. And for me, those other benefits would be if someone develops down the road a recurrence, you wouldn't have to put that patient through further testing uh, to obtain tissue and the time and stress and costs associated with that if you bank that information up front. Um, also, if you have a, another nodule and you're not sure if it's a second primary or a metastasis, it would give you a way to attempt to determine that. Um, so I do think uh, testing in all of those groups is reasonable. Currently in Canada, there's a national program funded by AstraZeneca to provide testing to all resected specimens. So the cost issue isn't actually an issue for us at the moment. I'm not sure how long that'll last. And then for those that are positive, the treatment is covered by that program. Um, in my center right now, we only have reflex testing for stage 3Bs and 4s. So our pathologists would do their IPLEX HS lung panel for AGFR and KRAS mutations, um, reflex in those patients. And then if those are negative, they would do ROS and ALK. And then if you want the testing done in someone of a lower stage, then that would have to be initiated by um, a surgeon or oncologist or other party. So um, that is our situation in my thought. Great. Thanks. Dr. Kadane, what are your thoughts? So uh, <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm going to say both a, a very Canadian and also a very un-Canadian uh, thing um, that, that perhaps follows it. Uh, the, the, starting with the Canadian thing, I, I agree with Dr. Edwards. Um, we do have to think about um, when, when you're dealing with a, 
uh, single payer system, like most of the Canadian systems, that each province has its own single payer system. Uh, there's uh, there has to be a certain degree of justice and equity um, in in how you administer uh, public funds, uh, and so uh, you there has to be a high um, high burden of proof to show that it's effective uh, in order to expend those funds. And so, uh, you know, I, I think that, um, I think from my perspective, that burden of proof is there. Uh, I don't think we need to wait for overall survival. Um, so I, I would say that even through that lens that it, it should be mandated, uh, even for the one Bs um, on the, uh, as, as an un-Canadian thing, perhaps, uh, uh, I will say that, uh, in, uh, and if you indulge me, in light of Lung Cancer Awareness Month, uh, you know, I'd like to think of it also as Lung Cancer Awareness and Advocacy Month. So I think we really take, need to take a step back because um, don't want to be antagonistic towards other disease site groups, but uh, this is not even a conversation or a question if this were breast cancer. So I'm not sure why we're spending a lot of this time debating about whether we should test for something that's actionable and treatable and that has this kind of uh, RCT evidence for it. Because um, in breast cancer, even marginal benefits uh, that with hazard ratios that could not be driven through with a bus, they, they would be adopted wholesale. So uh, I think it's... Uh, um, uh, I think as an un-Canadian response, I would say, hell yes. Wow. Thank you for that insight. I really appreciate it. This is Jessica. I can tell. Okay. Dr. Kodova, what are your thoughts? Um, I'm going to play a little bit of a devil's advocate, but mostly because of the practice where I'm placed. I am in a... <clears throat> I'm with OHSU, but my primary practice is a non-academic and a community center where the testing is not, it's not reflex testing. It has to be ordered and it's not always covered by insurance. So in order for the patient in a way to find out whether they do or do not have an actionable mutation, it may cost several thousand dollars. And in certain um areas of the country, depending what your population is and what the socioeconomic status of, the, of your patients um, is, it is not always an easy cost to cover. Uh, so in a way, you kind of have to figure out what it is that what resources you have available and whether you're able to provide it to all patients or whether you're only to, able to provide it to patients where you will have the highest yield of having of identifying actionable uh, uh, treatment plan. So for the for this particular mutation, um, even in the trial, it's about a third, maybe a little bit less than a third of patients who were who had the EGFR mutation that would be treated. So in a way, you have to test three patients to identify one, maybe four patients to identify one, and that someone has to pay for it. It's great if you are able to identify funding and sources uh, to secure this for all patients, but it's not reality. Thank you. Dr. Martin, what are your thoughts? So, so there's been a lot of discussion about what might be the right thing in the abstract. And I'm gonna give you perhaps a more practical perspective on this, that the pathologist is looking at slides and they may do their TTF1 stain or what have you and identify, say it's an adenocarcinoma. They really don't have any idea what the imaging shows. If you biopsy a lung knowing there's a brain met, 
They just don't know um, what the stage is. And so for them to have to try to figure that out introduces a lot of delays. If it's up to a clinician to order the testing, that can lead to a lot of delays. A lot of us just don't have time to check our Epic inboxes multiple times a day and keep up with these things. In the adjuvant setting, we have weeks to decide if we're going to give the therapy, that's fine. But patients are also getting biopsies when they have a huge burden of disease. And it is absolutely critical to get this testing underway right away to lead to therapies that are gonna be life-saving. And so I feel like there's so much room for error if we leave it up to clinicians to order the testing instead of having it be reflex. That's what we've opted to do at our institution. And I feel pretty strongly that that is worth the cost because of the situations where it can backfire if there's a delay. The second reason to get the testing besides EGFR is that just a week ago, uh, the FDA approved um, a study called Empower 010, which uses adjuvant atezolizumab after chemotherapy for resect resected lung cancer, where you need to have that pdl one status testing. So all the more reason to get the testing and another point that's just a practical matter is that you don't necessarily want to do all these tests piecemeal. There's some benefit to doing a panel such as NGS. And in fact, the NCCN guidelines suggest using panel testing instead of individual testing because you may sort of consume or use up your slides and tissue if you do it one at a time. Great points. Dr. Donington. So everyone's made really amazing, great points. And I think maybe I'll just, I feel like I'm going to surmise it. Like, yes, we should definitely be doing it to everybody. Let's face it. It's where the field is going. It's where our science is going. It's where stage four went and we are going to follow. There's no doubt about it, but none of the mechanics are in place. None of them. It's like crazy. Um, and where there is, you know, many institutions have reflex testing for stage four patients. It doesn't exist for early stage disease. And you're right, like my institution won't even order it while they're an inpatient because they know they're not going to get paid. So the patient has to leave and be gone for two weeks and then we order it and then maybe they'll pay for it, but the patient could get uh, billed for it. It's all insane. It's so insane right now. I think it will get worked out because let's face it, giving someone the wrong therapy is going to end up costing more money. So I think there will be a point when it gets taken care of, but we're going to go through a couple of years of it being super, I use the word clunky, where you're right, surgeons have to order it, it's not going to be reflex, and even what test is so not uniform. Um, NGS is better, but it's also more expensive than just ordering an EGFR. So like what Dr. Edwards says, where you get an EGFR and that's not positive, then you order the ALF and the ROS economically makes more sense, but not, I think probably we'll all move to NGS eventually, but it's going to take a couple of years. And in the meantime, we have to struggle through because I think it's the right thing to do. Thank you for that. Um, we, we've touched on the next question a little bit in, in some of these responses, but maybe we can do it rapid fire and go around. So try, try to remember these questions. And that is, um, uh, and, and, and the question is directed specifically to your institution. So are you doing reflexive testing? Yes or no? If yes, for whom? And, um, and um, is you, has your institution adopted adjuvant-targeted therapy for EGFR mutations? Yes or no? And then how is that implemented? I mean, you go to tumor board, is it a referral? Um, what's the process um, by which 
um, patients get tested, get a consultation, and get adjuvant treatment. Um, so let's start with Dr. Kadane. Yeah, thanks. So um, uh, I will just start by saying that again, uh, the system is a little different. So it's a, it's a universal health healthcare system, and it's administered through the province. So the, this applies to the entire province, and it's a single payer. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, Dr. Katova mentioned about, you know, uh, whether it benefits people, people can pay for it. It, it, it. If it's accepted for the province, everybody, nobody pays for it. It's just done for everyone. Um, so um, we have reflex testing for our province. Uh, so if, if any uh, biopsy that is done that has the word uh, lung in it, or lung cancer, or can or is TTF positive, or it looks like lung origin, will get reflex uh, ALK and PDL testing, uh, and um, that is like that's just uh, standard. Um, and then if it's uh, requested, if it's if it's uh, if it meets, meets criteria, that specimen can be tested for uh, EGFR mutation. Uh, or, or uh, NGS. So um, what ends up happening for resected specimens is that they will, uh, the pathologists have sort of a pro forma way of assessing uh, the pathology specimen. And if it meets uh, ADARA criteria because of uh, compassionate release or compassionate access program, um, currently there is funding to do um, testing for EGFR in all the samples. But prior to all of this, uh, everything got out in PDL. So, so anyway, so it's, so it's reflective for, for everyone at this moment to, to test EGFR for resected specimens that would meet a, meet a DARA criteria. And then how do you apply this? So when we see the patients post-operatively, if they meet criteria, we just refer them to medical oncology and we don't have to specifically say we're interested in this. They will uh, talk about with the patient um, and we'll go from there. Great, Dr. Kotova. So currently there is no reflex testing on the specimens. It is decided that Nasadic multidisciplinary conference where it's, uh, if it's recommended, it will be ordered and performed at that time. And then the adjuvant therapy will be applied based on the results. Um, having said that, up until recently, several months ago, I was in a different institution where there was a huge luxury of having it done reflexively. In fact, it was being, it was performed on a biopsy specimen and then as if the patient underwent surgical resection and biopsy was performed and the testing was done, it would also be repeated on the resected specimen to see if there is any discrepancy. Huge difference from where I went from A to essentially a Z. Dr. Kshov, one follow-up question. Are there certain concepts or criteria used by the multidisciplinary team at your current institution um, that, um, that guides that, that's, that selective testing and treatment? I, I can't really think of, a speci of uh, any specific guideline other than the patient. This is the pathology results. I think it's mostly pathologic staging that is the main guide. Dr. Martin, what happens at the University of Virginia? We have reflexive testing and we do start it with the biopsy. We generally don't repeat it on the resection specimen unless there's some concern about uh, inadequate biopsy or disconcordance with the clinical picture. Um, so we are lucky that we have that. And it, it, I do think it saves a lot of time for other uh, treatments down the road. 
Another important point is that um, the NCCN, in fact, specifically recommends that you don't decide on doing EGFR testing on anything besides the pathology results. So we know that Asian populations, about a 50% rate of EGFR mutation and adenocarcinomas in Western countries, it's 10 to 30%. Um, so and females, it's higher, non-smokers, it's higher, but you shouldn't only test Asian female non-smokers because they can be white male smokers that have an EGFR mutation. And so it really should not be guided on any clinical factors, but simply on what's under the microscope. So I wanna make sure that point gets out to everybody. Um, the other thing I think is important to mention too is that not all EGFR mutations are created equal and that the ADORA trial specifically looked at um, exon 19 mutations and another one called L858R. And you're thinking, oh my gosh, do I really have to know all this? But that's actually what the FDA approval is based on. And about 10% of EGFR mutations don't fall into those two categories. Some of them will still respond to osimertinib, but some of them won't. To me, that's when you just have to ask an oncologist who really knows what they're talking about. But I feel that that's important for the audience to know that EGFR mutation positive it could be a whole bunch of different ones, and some of them are indicated and some of them aren't. And, and how do patients get to the medical oncologist? Is that just up to the um, surgeon, or if there's a positive mutation status on the reflexive testing, they, is there some process that automatically refers them? How does that happen? Um, it's not automatic, but that's because we review every resection patient in our tumor board. And so we talk about it with the team and we talk about whether they're going to be treated at UVA or if they have a community oncologist. And if they have a community oncologist, we make sure that we transmit that information. Um, so it's just that we, we talk about every single case as much as we possibly can. Excellent. Dr. Donington, what happens at the University of Chicago? So our biopsy, so if IR or IP does a biopsies for us, those are reflexively tested. The resection specimens are not. Again, they won't run it on an inpatient because of insurance reasons. So we do similar to what Dr. Martin discussed, everyone comes to the tumor board. If it is a 1B or greater patient from the nanocarcinoma, we will then order the reflex testing from the tumor board. And usually it's the pathologist who orders it. If they see an oncologist, obviously within our hospital, that's super easy. The results come to them. We do send a large gene panel. They get an NGS panel. We don't send individuals. Um, it is a little, again, a little more challenging for um, patients who come from outside oncologists than it really does rely on the surgeons to make sure that that information gets shared with the outside oncologists. Uh, luckily, we do have some care everywhere and other ways for sharing of network information. But it's, again, I feel like there are holes, there are all these little holes in the system where someone could get dropped. Um, and we worry about them. And Dr. Edwards, what happens at your institution? Um, for us, we just have reflexive testing for the advanced cancers. So it's clinician driven for the earlier stages. And same with um, patients ending up at the medical oncologist's office, that's surgeon uh, initiated. Um, in discussions with our medical oncologists, I think they're quite keen, uh, as are we, to have more uh, extensive reflexive testing. And we are moving from the IPLEX to the NGS next year, hopefully. So um, we're trying to make some, some movement and some gains there. Thank you, everyone. So my next question, we kind of already talked talked about, right, biomarker testing. 
And so I'm going to spin it a little bit and I apologize. Um, but it seems to me that there's a lot of variability, right, in this biomarker testing going forward and that it relies on a lot of immunohistochemistry unless you're talking about next-gen sequencing. And so even our pathologists, one to the other, don't actually agree. And so what, what tests and assays are you using? We know with all the immunotherapy trials, actually there were companion assays that went with each trial that were different from one trial to the next. And go, look, going forward, we, we you know, originally thought greater than a 50% PDL1 staining was predictive, but now we know 10% okay, and even 1% okay. And if you combine that with tumor mutation burden, that their outcomes are also um, better. And so how are you incorporating this into your tumor boards and how you take care of your patients? Um, so I'll start with Dr. Kotova. What are your thoughts? Uh, that's a diff that's a difficult question to answer as I um, as it it's always unclear what exactly which tests are done and how the reports are come in. Uh, we, for example, we've transitioned from one type of report to another type of report which had a lot more information and the way the summary is. And as a surgeon, I find it very difficult to interpret. I look for some key words, but for the most part, this is where I find multidisciplinary um, discussion is hugely helpful where we can actually zoom in on more specific results of these targeted uh, and genetic mutations, which can be picked up. And in fact, some of the summary of the reports will actually say this, there is a clinical trial where this particular mutation may be an actionable. Consider either uh, referring or consider involvement to, into this trial. At times, it's a pretty short report. There's maybe two lines on it. And other times it could be a full page of these recommendations. Uh, so um, for most of this, I would probably defer to an oncologist. I you know, I can appreciate that because these trials are growing by leaps and bounds and it's impossible to keep track of everything, every testing and what's available. Um, Linda, Dr. Martin, what about your institution? Uh, yes, yeah, so, so when it comes to EGFR, that one is easier. It's a PCR DNA test. And I think that's pretty standard unequivocal um, not as challenging, but the PDL1 testing does get confusing. There are multiple different assays. And in fact, I just learned that on the Empower 10 study, they started out with one assay and they sort of aborted it partway through because it wasn't very predictive. And then there's, again, your institution may have one assay that doesn't match up with the companion um, um, immunotherapy agent. So it gets really confusing. Um, how to interpret it. And when it comes to that, PDL1 is not the perfect biomarker. Um, it tells some of the story, but we still see responses sometimes in patients with zero or very low PDL1 scores. And it may matter things like tumor mutational burden, which is where they look at how many mutations per base pair. Um, and it just sort of means how ugly is the tumor. The more tumor mutational burden, the worse. There's other things like there's a mutation called SDK11 that may predict resistance to immunotherapy. So I'm pointing out just how complicated it can get. 
And yes, we need to partner with our oncologists to help them guide this, guide us through it, but also maybe keep searching for, is there a better, more predictive assay when it comes to deciding about immunotherapy? Um, a lot of the other biomarkers, I think, are more reliable, their DNA testing, but the one that is probably most clinically relevant ends up being the PDL one and, and I don't think we know the whole story there yet. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I find it odd that we have targets to PD-1, yet we don't check PD-1 expression, we check PDL one which is a different protein. It, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Dr. Donington, can you provide some clarification? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the antibodies for PDL one is crazy. Every single company has their own antibody. And um, they're not all that reliable. They're not all that repeatable. They don't all match. And it's a little bit crazy. Each institution has adopted the one they like, but you're right. Sometimes that's not the one that matches. Like if you're on a trial and you have to send tissue and retest it with the antibody they want. Luckily, I don't think the approval for atezolizumab was particular as to which antibody you use, but I didn't read the FDA approval word for word. Um, but yeah, I think this, um, our understanding of which patients respond to immunotherapy and how they respond is still in its infancy. I really do. I think we have a long way to go before we can really tell exactly who is going to respond or not. And I think the science is, is just not there yet. The antibodies are the best we have, but it's, it's, it's still not good. Thank you. Dr. Edwards, what are your thoughts? I think it stresses the importance of the multidisciplinary team. Um, and I know in my center, we don't review nearly half, let alone all of the patients that we see in a multidisciplinary setting. Um, I, I wish that we could figure out a way to do that, but uh, I think we have enthusiasm, but lack efficiency in our <laughs> multidisciplinary rounds. So. We're working on that and hoping to get better, but uh, I agree with everybody. It's all very complicated. We have a lot to try and keep up on. We have to lean on each other to try and understand all the advances coming out and continue to help our patients as best possible. Great. Dr. Kadane, what are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, it's pretty similar to what Dr. Edwards said. I think this um, does again boil down to how the, the systems are a little different. Um, at the provincial level, um, by and large, the system in place uh, forestalls that particular problem. It, it avoids it altogether, partly because um, you don't get, you get pretty similar reports uh, because it's a sort of uniform uh, diagnostic services of Manitoba uh, or shared health, as they call it uh, for us. Um, the other thing is that you, you don't get a whole bunch of different tests. You, you get at most your ALK and PDL1. Uh, and um, if there's anything more that is required, it has to be specifically requested. And typically, that's typically requested by the medical oncologist because they will be able to action on it. So, in many ways, it's, it is a bit paternalistic because you know, they, they don't uh, give us a very complicated uh, uh, painting set, uh, they just give us the three primary colors because that's all we can work with. And they, they, they reserve the really complex stuff for the people who can deal with it. So on the topic of variability that Dr. Marshall has brought up, um, the 
The um, Society of Thoracic Surgeons is a member institution for the National Lung Cancer Roundtable. And the National Lung Cancer Roundtable has different task groups, and the one on appropriate treatment is actually um, trying very hard to promote comprehensive biomarker testing uh, in all eligible lung cancer patients. And um, there was a biomarker summit that was held um, with a bunch of different stakeholders. And a lot of the themes that are coming out in this conversation, like the variability in testing practices, the the variability in the reports, the variability in the assays, um, the, um, the drinking from the fire hydrant with regards to all the mutations and the therapies that are coming out. Um, the, the goal of the group is to try to figure out how to break down those barriers and, and make sure all the patients get the testing and, um, and to minimize variability. So at the Biomarker Summit, there was a pan, there was a subpanel called the confessional panel, and it was not intended to be uh, religious, but it was in, it was instead intended to take the perspective of extreme ownership, and um, and that's because when you get a bunch of stakeholders in the room, and it's a multi-level problem, there's a lot of finger pointing this way, that way. So the ground rules for the confessional was you couldn't point your finger. You had to talk about how you as a surgeon contributed to the problem and what you could do better. Um, so you know, rolling um, with that theme and trying to understand how we can do things better as, as simply a first step, when you, when, you when you think about a patient that's referred to you for more tissue, um, so th this could be a patient with stage four. Someone sent to you for more tissue for comprehensive biomarker testing, how do you approach what procedure you're going to do? How do you decide if you're going to get an EBUS or a mediastinoscopy, or if you're going to do a thoracentesis or a pleural biopsy, or are you going to send them to interventional radiology for a corneal biopsy? Or if you don't do EBUS, do you send them to a pulmonologist at your institution? So just trying to understand how that um, variability um, plays out um, at, at each of your institutions would be a first step to us trying to figure out how we, we solve this. So, so let me just restate it because I, I, I blabbed a little bit too long, but how do you decide when you get referred a patient for comprehensive biomarker testing, you want more tissue, how do you decide what procedure you're going to do with your conceptual framework for that? And um, and, and how do you decide when to refer out? And so let's start with Dr. Martin. Okay, so yeah, I, I have certainly learned a lot about this in practice. I feel like this wasn't something I necessarily learned in training, but generally speaking, I sort of preach the idea of parsimony, that if you can do one procedure that gives you the stage and the diagnosis at the same time, that that is the ideal way to proceed. But I've learned some exceptions to that rule. One, pleural effusions, you often don't get enough cellularity to get all the tumor markers and everything that you're going to need. So that's problem number one. Number two, if it's a bone metastasis, those are notoriously difficult to, you have to decalcify it, you lose a lot of tissue along the way. So we've had a number of times that we had a solitary bone met and maybe a, a larger primary tumor, and we purposely biopsied the primary instead of the bone met and sort of just gone off the radiographic findings to document the bone met, which is sort of against what I was taught because you're gonna end up having to do multiple biopsies to get the answers that you need. Um, so I, I think those are some things to think about. Um, 
I think our interventional pulmonologists and hopefully the surgeons who do EBUS have learned that you have to send extra passes for cell block to be able to run tumor markers. And I think it is possible to get enough tissue for cell block that way, but it's gotta be sort of a forward thinking decision that everyone involved in that procedure knows they've gotta do some extra work to get enough tissue. Maybe it's a reason to do rapid on-site cytology and make sure you're actually hitting a node that has good tissue in it. Um, to be sure that you're getting what you need from it. So, you know, as far as doing a surgery to get more tissue in a stage four patient, you know, as a second biopsy, I could say it almost never had to do that. Um, and this is also where the liquid biopsy can really come in handy. And I'm starting to learn a little bit more about when that can be invoked. If someone has either progressive or recurrent disease, sometimes you can get a lot of answers from circulating tumor DNA and not have to do another invasive procedure. Fantastic. Dr. Donington, what's your approach? So I agree with Dr. Martin. I think how we were taught in training is no longer how we do things. You have to be able to get enough and good enough tissue to do your molecular testing if it's a lung cancer patient. So it does change that whole, well, you know, I have to biopsy the liver or I can FNA the node in the neck. Now you can't FNA a node in the neck anymore. It's not worth it. That's not good tissue anymore. And we, um, and I say, I even go to the point where because our interventional pulmonary team is a little bit more integrated into our thoracic oncology program than like our interventional radiologists, we definitely lean on them more heavily because we know the reflex testing is going to go. We know that they know they have to get a lot of tissue where sometimes you get the new IR guy, he's really a neuro guy, he doesn't know, he gets an FNA in the liver, gets three cells and says he's done, that doesn't count anymore. So it really, it does kind of uh, behoove the clinician, be that the surgeon, the oncologist, that when they're going to get that biopsy, they really either know that the person who's getting it understands the disease and the importance of all that tissue or that they communicate that because there is nothing worse than getting three cells in the liver and then having to go back and do another biopsy. And that's where we are right now. So. That's great. Dr. Donning, uh, excuse me, Dr. Edwards, um, what happens at the University of Calgary? Um, so um, we have a, a system in our province where any scans done in the province in any hospital if there's a lung nodule, the radiologists are supposed to put an alert into our, our provincial oncology program and those patients are sent to a central triage system trying to avoid delays with family physicians and other providers. So all of those referrals come to a central triage and get assorted. Um, so those that look like they're advanced stage disease get assorted to our interventional pulmonary team if they obviously look non-surgical and then the lower stage uh, get sent to us. And of course, it's not perfect and you get some crossover, but it turns into very few consults coming directly to us as surgeons that are obviously stage four disease with that question um, for better or worse. Um, so I'd say we're nicely supported by a wonderful interventional pulmonary team that deals with a lot of the advanced stage disease and answering those questions. Um, when they do come to us, I would say we follow the same principles uh, that Dr. Donington and Dr. Martin laid out. Dr. Kadane, Abba, the University of Manitoba, any differences there? 
Yeah, it's quite different. I'm always surprised about how vastly different uh, the different settings can be, even from province to province uh, in, in Canadian terms. So um, when we get these kind of uh, tissue requests, right, um, we've kind of, we built up a system here um, uh, and we, we built up a thoracic surgery team uh, that are also interventional endoscopists. So we have a pretty strong interventional endoscopy background uh, as part of our training. Uh, so, um, uh, what happens is we triage it to try to figure out what is the best, most parsimonious, uh, least invasive uh, type of biopsy. We don't, we don't really have a lot of liquid biopsy available to us uh, at the moment, although I'm hoping for that for the future. Um, so currently what ends up happening is we just decide based on what's, you know, the easiest to access, the safest for the patient and the likeliest to give us the highest yield. I will say though that because of our, uh, you know, uh, interventional endoscopy background and um, the work that um, uh, predominantly me and, and one of our other colleagues have done with uh, pathologists, uh, we've actually been able to get quite good tissue even from uh, neck nodes. Uh, so uh, percutaneous biopsies, um, the, the major thing actually is uh, image guided, uh, almost like you're doing an EBUS, but you're doing it with a, with a uh, neck uh, uh, core biopsy with a uh, a, a bigger core needle. And the other thing is the preservative solution that you send it in. Uh, so um, that, that I'm happy to answer any questions about that, but we've actually had quite, quite great success with, um, uh, with getting uh, excellent uh, tissue for NGS um, for, from those kind of uh, situations. So it, uh, you have to kind of, I think you have to holistically look at the patient and figure out what is the easiest to access, gets you the most parsimonious highest stage uh, answer. Dr. Cordova, you have the last word. That's uh, kind of interesting to hear variation uh, that, uh, that you can see across different practices. Um, for me, it's looking at my resources, at who I know is most skilled at, at achieving a particular task. And, um, you know, as a surgeon, sometimes you kind of have to hold your uh, urge to cut, uh, to cut uh, because maybe an, a less invasive procedure will give you the same result and maybe a bit faster with less of a morbidity associated with that. Um, but um, between the pulmonology, interventional pulmonology, interventional radiology and surgery, um, I probably have better luck with uh, the pulmonology pulmonologists are more skilled at um, obtaining uh, diagnosis and tissue for diagnosis compared to radiologists. So if this is something that I think is accessible, again, it's not just do I think that, it's uh, presenting the patient and reviewing imaging at, uh, at the conference and deciding is this high chances of, of accessing it uh, radiologically or bronchoscopically or surgically. Typically surgically would be reserved for if bronchoscopic or radiologic uh, um, access will be poor or yield will be less likely or, uh, or what, something like this. So um, in those situations, patient will probably be best, best served with a, a little bit less invasive procedure without general anesthetic, typically without general anesthetic or maybe with a much shorter general anesthetic. Um, and then surgical option is typically ends up as a backup. Um, for patients with dual effusion, um, actually we had pretty good uh, luck with obtaining quite a bit of information from the fluid cytology. I think sometimes the trick is 
um, to send a lot of fluid and ask them to spin it all down to have so that you have a heavier cellular blocks. Whereas the typical practice when I just uh, kind of started doing this was 20 cc's and that's all you get. But what happens to another you know, 1.8 liters? <laughs> you don't, there's plenty of cells. You don't have to waste. You can use them uh, to get them into your cellular block to get that information. Uh, but um, in even patients with pleural effusion, and that frequently was quite diagnostic, not just diagnostic, but enough to run additional tests, such as mutational analysis, such as the EGFR and um, some other things. So it's kind of looking at the local resources um, and using them to the best of, uh, to deliver best uh, care. I think that impact of local resources is addressed at one of our questions. Um, Dr. Abu Bakar, Umar from Nigeria manages a lot of lung cancer patients, but they present late. And lung cancer screening is, is too expensive. What are your thoughts on liquid biopsy as a future role in lung cancer screening? And we'll start with uh, Dr. Donington. It's, it's an exciting thought um, and I, uh, I worked with a, a biomarker lab for many years. I think it's something we all think we need, um, if not to be on its own, to pair with uh, lung cancer screening to help us differentiate people at risk or you know, uh, benign nodules from malignant ones, but it is, it's nowhere near ready for prime time. Uh, this kind of testing is still incredibly expensive and is not a diagnostic tool uh, right now. We have a ways to go. Dr. Kadani? Your thoughts? It's a, that's a tough question. I, uh, I, don't, I don't know that um, I have a better answer, <laughs> to be honest. Does anyone else have additional insight? Otherwise, we're, we're getting to the late hour and we'll okay. need to wrap up soon. I would just add that, you know, as far as liquid biopsy, we're probably far off on that for screening. And maybe it's just because of the burden of disease is the problem. But there are maybe other companion things that can be done, such as exhaled volatile hydrocarbons. There could be salivary or urinary assays for mRNAs. And honestly, Dr. Donington has done way more work in this area than, than I am privy to. But, uh, but I think we're gonna start to see some companion testing along with screening that maybe helps or eventually replaces it sort of like fecal occult blood testing and colonoscopy is done more intermittently. I think we're gonna get there at some point, but we're not yet. Great, thank you. I just wanna thank the panelists for their time um, and all their thoughts and wisdom and experience. Um, I think, uh, Wesley, you have some concluding remarks? Yes, that's right. Thanks to all of you for your participation and insight and, uh, and have a good evening. We invite you to become a member of STS if you're not one already. You'll enjoy a variety of discounts, benefits, and opportunity to help you grow professionally. Learn more at sts.org membership. Register now to attend the STS annual meeting in January and be together again with the cardiothoracic surgery community. Early bird discounts are available until December 2nd. Visit sts.org annual meeting to view the program and register. And uh, save the date for the next event in the STS webinar series. Program will address the latest treatments for tricuspid disease and just release trial data on concomitant surgical tricuspid repair. Join us on Thursday, November 18 at 7 p.m. Eastern. Thank you all and good night.